Amen. Thank you, Matt and worship team and choir. Done a great job leading us in worship this morning. What did you, you say you forgot? The capo? Yeah, I recommended it to the students. Capo. It would have been bad if I did I, I didn't even know you forgot it, brother. I, uh, that was a little lost on me. I, I'm not uh, too much of a, a technician on the musical side of things, but uh, I know how joyful it sounds to hear the Lord's people sing His praises and how much more joyful it must be uh, to the Lord Himself who's having His praises sang. Thank you for being here today for those who have led us in worship thank you for uh, offering you uh, yourself your praises to the Lord and thank you Bloomfield Baptist for all you're doing to share Christ in this community and thank you for all you're doing to share Christ beyond this community uh, you're aware of uh, the good work that uh, Bloomfield Baptist is doing here and you're supporting that work with your giving you're supporting that work uh, also uh, around Kentucky, around North America, and even around the world uh, with your going, as we saw in the uh, pictures from the Malaysian mission trip, but also uh, with your giving. And I wanted to say thank you for that. I uh, am here to report to you that you hosted 12,000 kids in summer camp this summer. You didn't know you hosted that many, but indeed you did uh, through our Kentucky Baptist camps, uh, Crossings Camps. Uh, there was 12,000 kids showed up. You helped pay the bills through your cooperative program giving. We saw 794 of those teenagers uh, profess their faith in Christ when they came to camp and heard the gospel. And thank you for making that possible. Thank you for helping plant 18 new churches in Kentucky this year. You funded those through your cooperative program giving. Uh, thank you for taking care of 600 kids day and night uh, who are the victims of abuse and neglect and who have... Uh, been removed from their situation of abuse and neglect and are now wards of the state, but through uh, Sunrise Children's Service at Kentucky Baptist Homes for Children. Uh, Kentucky Baptists are caring for those kids, at least 600 of them, uh, every day and every night, making sure they have a safe place to be. And, and uh, that's, that's your ministry. You're supporting that through the cooperative program. So many things beyond all of that you're doing. Uh, but let me back up just a little bit beyond Kentucky. Uh, you helped plant a thousand new churches in North America uh, through your cooperative program giving. You helped plant 6,000 churches overseas, both with cooperative program giving and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which your pastor has uh, spoken about already this morning. And, and I just want, before I turn our attention to God's Word, express my appreciation uh, to this church family for all you have done and are doing uh, to see that the gospel is shared, not just in Bloomfield, uh, but across Kentucky, North America, and around the world. Uh, thank you, uh, Brother Richard, for having me here. Uh, I love your pastor, and I am so thankful that uh, he is your pastor. Thankful that he has that privilege. Thankful that you have that privilege. It's good to see when uh, uh, a church is served well uh, by a pastor who loves the Lord and loves the church. And it's good to see a pastor and his family be loved by the church. And I sense that's what's happening here, and we uh, praise God for it. We're looking today to a passage of Scripture. It's actually a Psalm of David. But it's a Psalm of David uh, found not in the book of Psalms, but in, of all places, 1 Chronicles. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles. The Psalm begins in chapter 16, verse 8. And while there are parts of this Psalm that are found in the book of Psalms, in its entirety, it's only found here in 1 Chronicles. We're not going to read the Psalm in its entirety, but we're going to highlight some verses today as we ask a very simple question. 
And the question is this, what is my obligation to my neighbors and to the nations? What is my obligation? What is our obligation to our neighbors and to the nations? 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. Let's read the first verse of the psalm. Where David says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Or, it's the Hebrew word for nations. David is reciting a psalm here at an occasion of celebration. The occasion for celebration is that uh, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony, uh, has been brought back to the holy city of Jerusalem. And that's a really, really big deal. Now, if you don't know much about the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, you're going to have to think beyond the old Indiana Jones movie with me for a moment. Uh, this is uh, something that's that, that a lot bigger than that. Uh, it comes, uh, at least uh, this part of the story of the Ark, uh, comes at, at an interesting time uh, within uh, the, the, the life of God's people, the history of God's people, Israel. David is serving as king, is reigning as king over Israel, appointed by God to that post. And David is leading an effort to have the ark brought back to the holy city of Jerusalem. Where had it been? Well, it had been out in one of the outlying communities, uh, and it sort of been disregarded. That is symptomatic of what had been happening before David became king of Israel. If you are aware of, of the history of, of Bible times and God's people and the kings who ruled over Israel, uh, then you might recall that David was not the first king of Israel. He, in fact, was the second. Uh, the first was a king by the name of Saul. Uh, for many, many years, the Lord's people did not have a king. The Israelites did not have a king. The king of kings was their king. Uh, but they became convinced that they needed an earthly king, and so they asked uh, that God would give them an earthly king. And he said, no, I'm your king. And they said, well, we, we know you're a king, but we want an earthly king like all the peoples of the world. Uh, and so the Lord granted uh, that uh, request for the Israelites. Saul became king. But immediately when the people had an earthly king, they began to disregard the king of kings and sort of go their own way. And Saul led them. Uh, in many ways, away from the Lord and the Lord's ways. And one of the symptoms of that is that the Ark of the Covenant, as I mentioned a few moments ago, had been disregarded. Why is that a big deal? Well, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been, been actually built a long time before David or King or, or Saul were, were king of Israel. It had been built when Moses uh, was leading the Israelites from the land of bondage in Egypt to the Promised Land. God had spoken. He had given very specific commandments to Moses, Moses uh, to have uh, the ark built by the artisans, the craftsmen of Israel. Uh, it was sort of a, a wooden box, kind of like a piece of furniture, if you will. It was uh, overlaid with gold and adorned, decorated very beautifully. Uh, there were certain things that God gave instructions that were to be placed in uh, the ark. And those things uh, symbolized some of the great victories that God had won for the people as he had led them from the land of slavery to the land of promise. And the ark uh, in and of itself was a reminder to them that God had been with them and that he had provided for them. In fact, uh, that reminder was, was very strong in the sense uh, that God has said 
when he had them build the ark, he said, you'll carry this with you wherever you go. It will symbolize my presence among you. One place he puts it like this. If you want to meet with me, you come before the ark, and I will meet you there. And he also noted that because the ark symbolizes my presence, and I'm a holy God, then the ark is to be treated as holy. The ark was kept in the holy of holies of the tabernacle. And yet, when the Lord's people settled in the promised land and everything was good and they got their own king and Jerusalem was the place they would come to worship, the ark wasn't even there because the people had disregarded it and in many ways had disregarded the Lord. But that was during the reign of King Saul that this disregard really became evident. And then Saul was replaced with David. David, a man after God's own heart, had it in his heart to right the wrongs that had been taking place. And one of the things that David wanted to do was to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the Holy City of Jerusalem where this symbol of God's presence would be present when God's people came to worship. Now, if you remember how that went, there was, there was a first effort that did not finish well. Uh, David led all the people out to the community where the ark was uh, being cared for. And they got it, and they loaded it on a cart that was being pulled by oxen, and, and they were making their way to Jerusalem, and all the people were celebrating. In fact, David was leading the way. It was, it was sort of like a parade. Everyone was worshiping and praising God. And then something happened. One of the ox stumbled, and, and, and the cart shifted, and, and the ark, shifted and it looked as if it would fall from the cart maybe be broken to pieces on the ground but there was a man who was walking alongside the cart whose name was Uzzah and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark and as soon as he touched it God struck him dead and you talk about raining on a parade <laughs> here's this joyous time of celebration and suddenly there's a corpse in the midst of the parade. Well, David becomes so upset by what's happening that he immediately he calls off the entire effort. He tells everyone, go home. Find a place for the resting, uh, a resting place for the ark nearby and, and, and just go home. And that's what they did. But three months later, David somehow came to realize why Uzzah was dead, what, what had happened, what had gone wrong. You see, back when the Lord had given instructions to Moses to build the ark and said, this will be holy in your presence, in your midst, because it will represent my presence among you, and I'm a holy God. The Lord had warned this. He said, now no one is to touch it except the priest when he is ceremonially clean. If anyone else touches it, they will die. And that's what had happened to Uzzah. David, realizing what had gone wrong, led a second effort to get the ark to the holy city. And this time, David did things the way God had said to them. You know, it's amazing how oftentimes we start out, I think, with the best of intentions to please the Lord. But when we disregard what God has said in His Word, rest assured, we will not please Him. And it won't end well. 
But this time, they did things the way God had said to do them. They, they were successful at getting the ark to the holy city. They're celebrating, they're worshiping. David begins to recite this psalm. And it's a psalm not just about God and all his goodness to his people, but it's a psalm where David prophetically speaks about those who know the Lord making him known. Where David speaks about those who, who are worshiping God and God is being worthy of being, uh, receiving their worship about their obligation to share the Lord, to teach others about the Lord who don't know Him. What is my obligation? Well, our obligation is, is to teach God's truth to the nations. And one of the things David highlights is that God is good and He has done good things. In fact, read with me again some of the verses from the psalm. In verse 8, David said, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, uh, make known His deeds among the peoples. Then in verse 9, Sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works. He's done wonderful things that we need to be sharing with others about. Then skipping down to verses 24 and 25, here's what David says. He says, Declare His glory, God's glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. David says, teach the world. Teach the nations. Teach your neighbors. There is a good and loving God who has done wonderful things. Because believe it or not, there are a whole lot of people in the world who don't know those simple truths. Thousands being beheaded by ISIS. And as the swords fall, there's a scream that comes from the mouths of the executioners. Allah Akbar. It's an Arabic phrase. Hundreds and hundreds of Christian villagers in Nigeria being literally macheted to death, hacked to death as their villages are invaded in the night and their daughters are stolen. And the ones who come in to invade and to kill and to rape and to steal, scream, Allah Akbar. In Afghanistan, another bomb goes off, strapped to the chest of a jihadist. But just before he detonates it, he screams out, Allah Akbar. Translated into English, that Arabic phrase is, God is great. Now that's a little puzzling to me. To declare God is great while slaughtering innocent people. To declare God is great while committing unspeakable, horrific acts towards women and children 
to declare God is great while snuffing out the lives of people who just showed up in a marketplace or children who just showed up at school. But here's the thing. The Muslims worship a false god who was created by a false prophet. And, and this god is, is, is vindictive. He has declared that war is holy. Uh, he has said, go murder in my name anyone who refuses uh, to bow the knee to Allah and convert to Islam. The Muslims do not know our God. But they need to know Him. For He is their only hope. And yet just as lost as a jihadist in Iraq is your niece or nephew or son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter who does not know Jesus as their Savior, who has yet to confess Him as Lord of their life, upon whom does the obligation rest to see that the nations know that there is a good and loving God, not one who has commanded, go kill in my name, but one who has given the life of His only Son that we might have life and have it to abundance, one who so loved the world that he did everything that was necessary that any who would put their trust in him could be saved. Upon whom does that obligation rest? David says it rests upon those of us who know the Lord to make him known. We have an obligation to our neighbors. We have an obligation to the nations to make him known to tell of His wonderful acts, to speak of His goodness, of His kindness, and of His love. To teach God's truth to the nations. Of course, that truth doesn't just include that God is loving, but it also, David says, means that we must warn them that God will judge. God's judgment is referenced a, a couple of times in the psalm. First in verse 14, where David says it like this, He is the Lord our God, His judgments are in all the earth. And then near the end of the psalm, verse 33, he says, Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. The reality and the standard of God's judgment is not hidden from us. It has been made clear to us. The fact that, that, that we will be held accountable for our wrongdoing, for our disobedience, for our sin. You see that throughout the Bible. You see that uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden. And you see that all the way uh, to the book of Revelation where the nations are judged. The reality and the standard is clear. The book of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 puts it like this. Man is destined to die and after that face the judgment. 1 John 5, 12 uh, talks about the standard. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Romans 6.23, uh, the consequences, the wages of our sin is death. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't want you want to know if you, if, you, if you stood to face judgment? If that was what was waiting for you in your future, wouldn't you want someone to warn you that if you were going to be separated from, uh, from God forever and thinking about who God is. God is love. Okay, I'm going to be separated from love and the source of love forever. What does that leave me? 
the hatred of hell. The Bible says the Spirit of God is our comfort. Okay, I'm going to be separated uh, from comfort and the source of my comfort forever. What does that leave me? The turmoil and the agony of hell. The Bible says Jesus is your life. Okay, I'm going to be separated from life and the source of life forever. What does that leave me? The eternal death of hell. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want someone to warn you? Wouldn't you want someone to tell you how to avoid that separation? Surely any of us would. Surely anyone in the world would. Surely our neighbors would. Surely those among the nations would. And the obligation rests upon those of us who know the Lord to make Him known. What is my obligation? Well, thank God it doesn't stop with warning of judgment. We have an obligation to tell them that God saves. And David, even in this psalm, celebrates the salvation of the Lord and tells us to declare it. Look at verse 23. David says, Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of His salvation from day to day. Every day be be telling about the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because your neighbors need to know. Why? Because the nations need to know that God has done everything that needs to be done in order for us to escape judgment. Think about those verses I highlighted a few moments ago. Hebrews 9.27 Destined to die, face the judgment. Do you know how that passage continues? So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he'll appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We need to know, the world needs to know, it's not just judgment. God has brought salvation. Indeed, he who does not have the Son does not have life. I shared that verse in 1 John 5, 12, but that's not how the verse starts. I picked up in the middle. Do you know how the verse begins? He who has the Son has life. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but that's not the end of the verse. Can you quote the verse from there? But the gift of God is everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The world needs to know the bad news of God's judgment. But bless God, we have good news to share as well. God has said in judgment over sin already. He has judged sin on the cross of Calvary where His Son suffered and died to pay the price of sin. And any who would put their trust in Him and what He has done, and any who would confess confess Him as Lord, the Bible assures us will be saved. And it's our privilege to share that good news. In fact, it's an obligation. What what is my obligation? Teach your neighbors in the nations about a good and loving God who will judge but who saves. But there's one more thing before we leave the psalm that we must capture because it's it's sprinkled throughout the psalm. And this is that we have the opportunity and the obligation to increase God's glory. In fact, to multiply the glory of God. How does that work? Well, let's see a, a few of the verses first. Looking at verse 24, David says it like this. He says, declare God's glory among the nations. Then skip down to verses 28 and 29. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord, listen to this, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Is God due glory? Do, do we owe it to Him to glorify Him? I mean, think about it. He's, he's the creator of all that is. He gave us life. He has provided a way for us to have life eternal. Does not He deserve to receive our glory, our worship, our honor, and our praise? Not just for time, but for all eternity. We will be able to glorify Him. But get this. When we share the gospel with our neighbors, when we share the gospel among the nations, we're multiplying the glory of God. How does that work? Well, when you share the gospel with someone, and the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin and convinces them of uh, the truth that Jesus is the Savior, they put their trust in Christ and are saved. It's not just going to be you around the throne giving glory to the Savior forever. It's going to be the person who was saved through your testimony God used. And so the glory of God has increased for all eternity. There'll be two of you now. And whoever else you share the gospel with, and whoever they share the gospel with, and then they in turn share the gospel with, when we share the gospel, we're multiplying the glory of God for all eternity. And the one who deserves to hear his praises sang in the language of all the peoples will be able to hear and to rejoice. I tell you, you can't tell you this. This will change your life. You see how you can multiply the glory of God for all eternity simply by sharing the gospel. My life was changed driving a church bus around the hills of Owen County. Uh, I was pastoring a church there just out of seminary. And I noticed there was, there was a lot of uh, migrant workers uh, in our community, in our county. Uh, they were there working in tobacco crop. And, I'd go out and pick them up when they ended their work day on Saturday afternoon and bring them back to church. And our ladies would be there fixing a good meal for the men. Uh, these men uh, didn't get a home-cooked meal unless they cooked it, and they confessed they weren't good cooks. And so, uh, but our ladies were, and so they loved to come and, and uh, have a meal that our ladies prepared. Usually, while they were getting the food ready, we'd have a soccer game out to... Uh, out back to the church in the field where they would trounce us. I mean, there was just no competition. Uh, they'd run circles around us. But we'd enjoy that game, enjoy the meal. Then we'd go up to the sanctuary. We always had someone there who could share the gospel in Spanish. Uh, many of the men could speak no English. Some of them just broken English. And so we'd have someone who'd share the gospel in a way they could understand it. And, and, and here's what I witnessed. I, I witnessed these men who in, in, in so many ways were so different than I was that their appearance was different, their language was different, their culture was different. But they had the same response to the gospel that I had when they heard about a Savior who had done everything that needed to be done. They'd grown up within the Catholic teachings of their culture and all that they had to do, but when they heard Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. It's God's gift by grace through faith. Suddenly the tears would begin to flow and these men who so many ways were so different than I was were suddenly my brothers as they put their trust in Christ and were saved. 
seeing that transformation, welcoming it, that, that changed my life. My life was changed on a mission trip to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. We were working in the slums outside of the city uh, with this young man's father. I traveled. Jonathan Pope's here with us in worship this morning. Uh, his father's a dentist in Somerset, Kentucky, Mike Pope. Uh, uh, Mike organized this trip, and, and we were there in, in, in the community and uh, uh, building a little church building, doing door-to-door evangelism and vacation Bible school for the children. And one of the missionaries came to get me one afternoon. I was pastoring at the time a church here in Kentucky. I was Mike's pastor, and, and uh, he asked me, would you go with me on a trip? I said, sure, I will. And so we drove out uh, through the slums and out and, uh, to a bit of the countryside there, and and uh, I asked him where we were going. He said, well, there's a lady out here who wants a pastor to, to pray a prayer of blessing over her house, and you're a pastor, right? And I said, yes. He said, well, you'll do. And, and so uh, we pulled up, but I was taken back because there was no house there. Instead, what we saw was sitting just off the edge of the road, literally a few feet from the road, was this little structure built of literally of cardboard and sticks. She'd had it over in the field, but they had run her off of the squatter's field, and the only place she had to go was to the, uh, the right-of-way on the road. And so there she had put her little cardboard and sticks back together. And it was, it was about, I don't know, maybe from here to the organ there, and, and, and just uh, six or eight feet wide and about four feet high. And, and she met us at the door, but it was no door. It was just a hole in the cardboard, and she had a rag draped over it. And she welcomed us in. And I knelt down and I went inside and I couldn't see a thing. And I couldn't even stand up straight. In a few moments, my eyes began to adjust to the light. And I began to see what I had been hearing. Two little babies laying there in the dirt. And my mind went immediately to my home back in Kentucky and to my children and the safe and safety and and the warmth and the provision of my home I thought oh my a young mother living in a cardboard house with her babies in the dirt and all she's asking is that someone would pray God's blessing upon her home that changed my life change started long before that I suppose there was a knock at our door one evening and <clears throat> dad answered it we were living in a little rented house just across the street from the projects we've been in the projects but, but uh, it was a little crowded there with my grandparents and two other kids and dad and his three kids and this little two bedroom government project our mother had left and dad had three little boys one, two and four and I was working, having a hard time taking care of us, so he moved in with, with his parents, and then, then we got this little rental house. And lo and behold, standing at our door was two deacons from the First Baptist Church. And they'd come to invite us to church. Now, I, I'm not sure what those deacons were thinking. We didn't have much to offer the First Baptist Church, except trouble. <laughs> and we brought it. <laughs> I'll tell you what we found was a loving church family that, 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 that took us in and, and, and helped our family sort of heal and, and really helped raise us. A few years passed, there was another knock at our door one evening. This time it was our pastor, Brother Alan Harry. 
he was expected. Uh, my, my father had asked him if he could possibly drop by one evening, and he said sure, and they'd set up the time, and, and there he was, and, and Dad invited him in and, and, and put him in the green chair in the corner in the living room, and he brought a chair out of the kitchen and set that in front of him. He seated my older brother right there. My, my older brother had been asking questions about what it would mean for him to give his life to Christ. Brother Herod shared the gospel with him. My younger brother and I, we sat in the floor and we listened to what it meant to become a follower of Jesus. What it meant to receive the gift of salvation that he had died and raised from the dead to provide. And Brother Herod got three for one that night as we all gave our lives to Christ. We were baptized together a few weeks later in the baptistry of the First Baptist Church. I tell you, I'm thankful for a couple old Baptist deacons out knocking on doors who came to my house and invited us to worship. I'm thankful for a pastor who I know had a lot of things going on. He had his own kids to raise and there were doctors and lawyers in the church and a lot of important people, but, but he came to the rented house of a single dad and sat down in the living room shared the gospel with me and my brothers. I'm thankful for a church that understood its obligation to its neighbors and to the nations. I'm thankful that this church understands the same. Do you? Have you accepted your obligation? to your neighbors and to the nation.